Hello again, everybody, and welcome in to another edition of Political Beats, a podcast where we talk to people from the world of politics, covering, reporting, analyzing, even in politics, not about political items, but about their favorite music and specifically their favorite bands. Welcome in for the first time. If you're a first-time listener, welcome back. If you're returning, we hope you'll come back again. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram, along with my co-host, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I am doing fine today, my friend, and I'm very happy to uh, be taking a trip far back in time, the farthest back in time I believe we've ever gone for a <laughs> band and with a guest who I think is as about well-equipped to discuss them as anyone we could have asked for. Indeed. It's the going farthest back in time and also uh, stretching the longest career. So this will be an interesting little, uh, some gymnastics to fit what we want to fit into our time. But we're ready for it. And we've got a great guest on the line to join us today. Uh, he is a contributing editor at the Weekly Standard, author of the recent book, A Republic No More, Big Government and the Rise of American Political Corruption. He is Jay Cost. Find him on Twitter at JCostTWS. Jay, welcome to Political Beats. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you making time. Know you are a huge fan of the band we're about to uh, to cover. Before we get to that, though, we want you to explain what is your political job? What's your political beat on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, that's well, thank you for asking that. So I write for the Weekly Standard, um, and uh, I, uh, I, I got into this gig back in 2004, remember, when they still had blogs. So I had a blog that, that did the, I covered the 2004 election, and uh, it just seemed to take off, and I wound up at Real Clear Politics doing elections analysis, but I kind of drifted away from that over the last couple years and uh, finally finished that PhD this year. Uh, and so I do more history and uh, American political history. I like to do that. And uh, I, I do a lot of uh, work on political corruption, as the title of my book illustrates, is sort of where I am right now. And we also need to mention your upcoming book, which is sometime in 2018, right? That's right. It's going to be out around Father's Day in 2018. It's, it's called The Price of Greatness. Uh, it's, a, it's a book about James Madison and Alexander Hamilton uh, and their struggles during the early republic to figure out um, the way, the proper balance of public policy against, uh, you know, avoiding political corruption again. It's a, it's a theme in my work uh, the last couple of years is uh, political corruption. So, yeah. And uh, my friend Tim and I already are going back and forth, looking forward to picking up the copy of of, uh, of the book. So you have at least two sold already. I mean, great, those that's are good great. numbers. <laughs> uh, Jay Cost joins us today on Political Beats to talk about a fantastic band uh, formed back in 1964, one of the famous brotherly duos in rock and roll. Uh, brotherly duos don't always work out well. See this band, see Oasis, see the Black Crows, and even more examples. Uh, we, we spent uh, the last episode on the Eagles, very much a singles act. This is not. This is very much, I think, an album act, as we'll talk about through the podcast. They are rock and roll Hall of Famers. They are UK music Hall of Famers. About a 35-year career, one of the most important and influential bands of all time. We are talking about the Kinks. And Jay, we open the floor to you to discuss a little about what you love about the Kinks, how you found them, what their music means to you. Yeah, well, those are 
Those are some good questions. So I, uh, you know, I, I discovered different bands along the way. Um, I didn't really have much of an allowance when I was a kid. And when I was a kid in the 90s, you had to get CDs to listen to music, and they didn't have really discount CDs. So I sort of had this very slow accumulation. I listened to the Beatles in high school, and then I got a job in college so I could listen to Led Zeppelin, I think, in my sophomore year, and then The Who. I didn't really, I always knew about the kinks, but I didn't really find the kinks until the end of college and then into graduate school. Uh, and I think what really got me hooked into the kinks were really those classic albums from the late 60s, early 70s, particularly uh, Muswell Hillbillies. And, you know, over the years, I've sort of fallen in and out with bands. Like, I don't really listen to Led Zeppelin anymore. That was sort of a you know, kind of a, a thing from uh -huh. childhood, frankly. Um, you know, but the Kinks is one of those bands, like along with the Rolling Stones, just a handful of acts that I just end up coming back to sooner or later. Um, and I, I think there's probably two big reasons. I mean, the first is that there's just so much material from the Kinks. I mean, their, their first single came out in March of 1964 and their final LP came out in 1996. So, you know, there's... 30 years worth of material there. Well, I guess 93. So there's basically 30 years of material there. Um, but also the level of songwriting craft that they were able to bring. Um, Ray Davies in particular, uh, his capacity to write songs from a genuine point of view that was anchored in the real world, as opposed to, you know, I think like you think about people like John Lennon, who I, I you seemed political, but his material I didn't I don't think was focused enough but Ray Davies has a, a a level of focus to his songs about what's happening in the world that it's it's hard not to listen to him on a political level and also um you know he's got a level uh, he's got a sophistication you know I was thinking about this last night I was just getting ready for our um our show you know, I was thinking to myself, if you packaged his worldview up and wrote it up as a, you know, as you could you could write it as a social theory for mm. and get it published in an academic press <laughs> virtually, the level of sophistication that he shows um, in in his his view of the world. It, it, it's very challenging. Um, and so that always keeps me coming back and, and the musicianship as well. Dave Davies, I think, is an incredibly underrated guitarist. And just they were always such a tight quartet, able to really to bring it musically. So there's just so much with them. They're so dense. There's every time I fall back into the Kinks, I find something I hadn't discovered before. You know, for me, uh, as a kid growing up, you know, you go through the classic rock phase. For me, the classic rock phase, the high school phase, started with obviously the Beatles. Then of course it journeyed on to the Who, the Rolling Stones, sort of you know the big beasts, the Birds, the Velvet Underground. The Kinks took a lot longer for me to discover, and I think the reason for that is that I'd always associated them essentially with those early singles, which are good, and we'll talk about. You know, you really got me all day and all the night. Uh, tired of waiting for you. These are simple, very effective, but also sort of in that primitive early 60s mode, you know, before Rubber Soul happened and changed all the rules for what was expected from bands. And of course, the Kinks later hits, the, the second half of the 60s for them, the early 70s, it was never played on the radio. There, there was one song that I sort of vaguely kind of knew, which is Sunny Afternoon. Mm -hmm. Didn't really even associate it with the Kinks. Uh, but then, of course, you know, I was a naturally curious little boy, and I went out and I bought a two-CD set called The Kink Chronicles. 
Tracks is still a pretty interesting and worthy compilation. It's a two-album release back in uh, 1972 put together by a hardcore fan of the band who had very strong opinions about what was worthy in the latter half of the King's 60s career not worthy put together a very lovingly assembled set and it was a, a really good entrance for the you know the true artistic peak of the band and then after i got that i noticed there was only one song from uh, one particular album on that compilation and i was kind of curious as to what the rest of that album was like the song is the village green preservation society mm-hmm. and then i went and bought that album an old really dusty early cd version of the kinks are <laughs> the village green preservation society and at that point i was sold I was sold forever. I still consider that to be one of the finest albums ever made, finest albums of the 60s, and as you will see, one of the Kinks' finest albums. And I was stunned to encounter a sensibility that was so unlike everything else that I had ever encountered in rock history. Uh, Fundamentally, you know, this has to be brought up because it's really just an important part of, of grasping what Ray Davis was on about a uh, fundamentally conservative outlook. Uh, when everyone else was, uh, <clears throat> you know, taking acid and, you know, turning on, tuning in and dropping out, uh, Ray Davis was, you know, reminiscing about the good old days of village greens mm. and, you know, wasn't it nice to be in favor of God and country and, you know, good old British uh, mores and traditional values. And it was just, at first, I thought, well, is he being sarcastic? Is this just a piss take? And the more I listened, the more I realized, no. I mean, he's a self-aware guy, and there are definitely layers of irony in play here. But no, he's, he's deeply committed to this. He's deeply sincere. And I found that approach as a lyrical direction to be completely a, alien to what I had previously understood the kinks to be in terms of, like, you really got me and thrashy, you know, two-minute, two you know, early rock songs. But also, it completely at odds with every other band of that era that I could think of except perhaps one, which was the band, mm-hmm. which is probably the, uh, in a weird way has a certain American and analog to the Kings, mm-hmm. not instrumentally, not compositionally, but in terms of the fact that they were determined to rebel against the prevailing wisdom and embrace uh, traditionalist values in the music and in the lyrical themes in a way that no other groups were doing. So the Kinks really sold themselves to me on the basis of that. And then, of course, from that point on, it was a natural branching outward to discover the full full depth of their discography, which, as Jay says, is just endlessly rewarding, not just the 60s. There's lots of interesting stuff going on yeah. in the 70s. I'd say at the early 80s, they sort of tail off into, at least for my you know, for my for my money into irrelevance, but my God, what a very long and very varied career. Of note, I believe uh, Ray Davis makes the most appearances on the National Review list of 50 most conservative songs ever written. Uh, that full list, of course, at nationalreview.com. Ding, ding. Check it out. <laughs> uh, but I think Ray makes the most appearances on that list. Um, and you both have mentioned this, and it's totally true, which is, you know, you had to work to get into the kinks because... Classic Rock Radio ignored a giant portion of their output. Um, You heard this stuff really from the first three albums, which we can kind of talk about here. You know, You Really Got Me and All Day and All Night and uh, 
sometimes, you know, to the end of the day. And But anything after that, they ignored even the late 70s stuff the the stuff that was made for arenas and made to to rock classic rock radio outside of maybe destroyer never never played it again that stuff just 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 vanished for the most part and so you had to work and uh, i had a friend in college named zach peterson who kind of took me under his wing musically and introduced me to all this cool stuff you know big star and husker do and all that stuff that was not being played anywhere. And he gave me a copy of Village Green Preservation Society. And that was my first real exposure to the kinks outside of the first three albums worth of material. Yeah, you know, the kinks are sort of interesting in that their career is really marked by the, and it's almost best to see them on the cusp of breaking through as opposed to ever actually breaking through. Um, you know, they, they you really got me hit number seven in America, All Day and All the Night hit seven, Tired of Waiting for You hit six. You know, they never had that number one single in, in the States. And then, you know, um, they just sort of, they're, they're constantly around. They always have a major label contract. They can sell, you know, they can, they can fill a 2,500 seat arena, but they never have that kind of breakthrough to the mass audience, except for these sort of moments like Lola, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, And then a handful of singles in the, in the early eighties sort of end up breaking through, but you're right. They, so to, to, to listen to the kinks really requires, it's not something that you, you're going to have to find it yourself. In other words, you know, you're going to have to kind of track them down. And it's interesting because it's always kind of been that way Mm. with them, especially in the United States. I I would say they they were never, I I don't think that they were well served by pie in the, in the, um, as their, uh, as their label in the sixties. I don't think pie did a very good job of promoting them. Um, but even, you know, even even the handful of hits they had, they never, never a top, never number one single. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't think they even ever had a top 10 album in the, in the States either for that matter. I think their highest charting record was 11. So, you know, they're always kind of percolating right underneath the surface, but never bubbling over. Now we probably have to begin this. I don't know how fast we want to deal with this. Um, those first three albums, of course, there were different albums in America. We've sort of done this thing. We've retconned our American experience with these British invasion acts, the Beatles, the Stones, the Kinks, the Who, and we now treat them in terms of their UK discography. So while there were a bunch of like you know goofy half-compilation albums that Pi mm-hmm. released in America for the Kinks, the way we think of them are the way you can buy them on CD these days. The first album is The Kinks. It's 1964. Second one is Kinda Kinks. That's from 1965. And then the second half of 1965 saw the release of an album that I think is the first time you see them having a foot in a slightly different world, but it's still more in the old school than it is in the new school for Ray Davis's compositional approach, and that's The Kink Controversy. By the way, I would cite The Kink Controversy as having one of the coolest old school (laughs) 60s. 60s album covers ever um just like the classic sort of uh you know art you know 60s pop art thing with the inlaid photos of the band and Mm -hmm. then you have the you know the the large one in the front and you know the great you know know, 1965 era lettering but you know let's talk about those first albums we were dealing with the band where the, the joke is at least the reputation was that you know half of them didn't really know how to play their instruments yet you know jimmy page was in the studio doing the the guitar tracks on some of these songs, although I believe that it is not true it's as often is rumored yes. that he played the guitar solo on You Really Got Me. And that really was Dave Davis sort of wrestling around with his guitar and also with the amplifier that he had slashed in an amazing way. 
And although the albums themselves, I'm really not going to do anything to stand up in favor of the actual album track content of these albums, because honestly, those first two are just not that good. The singles are remarkable. I mean, and you talked about how the Kinks are thought of as an album act these days. Well, it's true. Certainly beyond this point, they are an album act, sine qua non album act. But in this early era, it's all about these singles. And if you've got time for any sort of, you know, if you like garage rock, if you like nuggets, if you like the energy of like early spiky British invasion music, you've got to love songs like you really got me you've got to love all day and all the night you gotta love the sort of left turn hey we have another mode with tired of waiting for you and then when you get into 1965 that's when they start doing some i think really interesting stuff set me free is a really angular little ballad song that always gets sort of lost between the cracks of the kinks early singles i think it's it's a very accomplished melody and a very accomplished songwriting production and then the one that really blows my mind of course is see my friends See My Friends is the one that I would like to single out. Everyone talks about, you know, the, the Louie Louie knockoffs. Hmm. You know, you really got me in all day of all the night. Uh, See My Friends is the first time, near as I can tell, and I'm a pretty good student of these sorts of things, that you have Indian modalities ever entering into popular music, ever. This is before Norwegian Wood by the Beatles, which is where we usually draw the line of like sitars and, mm-hmm. you know, Raga Rock and all that stuff coming into play. Then you had, of course, the Stones bringing it in with Paint It Black. And then you had all the stuff on Revolver like Love You Too and I Want to Tell You. But on See My Friends, which is a mid 1965 single, you have Ray Davis influenced by the Indian culture that he saw down in like, you know, London neighborhoods where he was hanging out with his wife. Bring that raga appeal, that raga vibe to an incredibly effective, rather heavy rock single that is, again, beloved by fans, never hear it played on the radio anymore, think it's one of the most forward-looking singles of the entire year, and uh, they don't get enough credit for that in my opinion. in the United States. It, 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 was, it was overlooked completely. And, um, you know, I think, you know, and I, I think that's sort of a, a good song is sort of a sort of point out that Ray was very, is very sophisticated at occupying different musical genres throughout his music. I mean, mm-hmm. he was here really kind of got this chameleon quality. And I don't, I, you know, because you see this as the decades roll on, is that he can jump into one mode and other, you know, he can do bluegrass almost. He can do, you know, campy British uh, theater. You know, he, he, I don't really think he, he sort of leaves, redefines any genre of music, but he is a very, very good chameleon and can take these different musical styles and repurpose them for whatever objective that he has in mind. And Set Me Free is one of the first ones where I think you see him stepping out of that comfort zone of the sort of the, uh, you know, amps turned up to 10 British blues rock kind of style that had sort of set them on out mm-hmm. uh, the prior year when he really got me. Yeah, the first three albums, I mean, just quickly, I think you certainly see the progression 
of the band very quickly. Uh, the first album is is tons of, of covers and, and R&B tracks and Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and Slim Harpo tracks. Uh, the vocals are kind of grunted out, it was not sophisticated very much. It, Jimmy Page, John Lord plays on the first album. They get to Kind of Kinks, which was recorded in like two weeks. Um, again, nothing in this world can stop me worrying about this, uh, that girl, which was used in Rushmore very well. That's kind of the first sense of some sophistication to come. It wasn't that uh, turned up to 11 uh, amp sort of sort of sound that they had in the first album. And then, of course, that goes right into Nagging Woman, which is not one of my favorite Kinks tracks at all. And then King Controversy, which, again, the songwriting gets a little more sophisticated. This world keeps going around, and I'm on an island kind of hints at, at future Ray Davis themes and songwriting. Um, Nicky Hopkins is, is, is playing with the band at this point, doing some keys on a great track called You Can't Win. Um, and then you hit this, I think, giant leap, I think we would agree, I think, from King Controversy to Face, face to Face, um, which is the first thing that would sound like the kinks for the rest of that decade and into the early 70s. Uh, it's got a concept. I mean, the interesting thing about uh, those, you always see on those first two albums, it's like the first song, the last song. You have the singles, the A-sides, and the B-sides, which end up on the albums, and those are usually the highlights. And then there's like an interesting ballad at the end. At the end of the first Kinks album, there's Stop, You're Sobbing, mm -hmm. which of course was later covered by The Pretenders. Pretty good cover. I think the, the cover by The Pretenders is better than the original version. Yeah. Uh, but then on Kind of Kinks, you have yeah, Nothing in the World Can Stop Me Worrying. That one is one of those things where you, Wes Anderson has obviously plundered the <laughs> Kinks obscurities. I got actually angry when I saw him do it on uh, the Lola album, he took my two favorite songs and used them. And I was like, now people are gonna gonna know about these songs and they're gonna think that I found out about them because of Wes Anderson. Damn you, Wes Anderson. But something better beginning at the end of Kink, Kind of Kinks. That is, a, that is that first legitimately, I think, sophisticated musical confection that Ray Davis came up with. And then on King Controversy, you've got the one to me, you've got some good rockers. I think Milk Cow Blues is pretty underrated as a rock song. Mm -hmm. Till the end of the day, and I am free, are, are the singles, Where Have All the Good Times Gone, of course, is a classic, classic Kinks rock song. It was covered by David Bowie on pinups. It's been covered by basically half the world. It's a classic song. But the one that really suddenly makes you think, this could be on face to face. It's the only one on the album is I'm on an Island. I'm on an Island is the best song on the King controversy. It's the one that points directly ahead to the next single that they were going to release, which is included as a bonus track on the King controversy album. If you go buy that CD, it's called dedicated follower of fashion. Mm -hmm. Dedicated follower of fashion is the moment where the, the, the one that people point to prior to that is a well-respected man. But I think a well-respected man, which actually does get airplay on classic rock stations. It's like the Kinks go acoustic. And in fact, I think it was released on an EP that was called Quiet Kinks with a horrible – spelled K – W Y. It was a horrible. Oh. Pun. Yeah, just, they were really fun. A terrible, you know, kink K things in that day. It was really awful. But uh, it's that was kind of a failed experiment in my opinion. Although it's it's beloved by a lot of people. The one where they really start hitting their stride is on dedicated follower fashion, which is just a vicious parody of London fashion and you know the Carnabetian army which is the term that he comes up with on that song which is him he coined that phrase and it's just a magnificent phrase of all these dandies and fops and style posers mm -hmm. strutting up and down the street in their ridiculous pompous semi-psychedelic regalia and it's a brilliant song they seek him here they seek him there 
Regent Street and Leicester Square. Everywhere the Carnivation Army marches on, each one am dedicated follower of fashion. And it's a single that was never released on an album, and it is the start of the sort of what we consider now in retrospect to be the true Kinks era. It's the beginning of 1966, and this takes us to what I think may still possibly be the greatest thing the Kinks have ever released. I will fight to the death. I will stand up in traffic to defend face-to-face. Yeah, let me just say real quick, too, on uh, the first three albums. I think there's a dynamic, I think, that is... It, that exists in the kinks um that musically not lyrically but it, it's on the it's on the it's on the music side of the of the of the band which is that you know when when you think about the kinks you think about ray and his his talent as a songwriter but you know he has not always necessarily been a consistent songwriter um he has this sort of real spark of genius that really begins starts in 66 and runs through 72 where you know there's hardly a misfire um but one of the really cool things about them is that when ray's songwriting is kind of a little lacking or a little uninspired he can always fall back on his brother Mm -hmm. for the muscle sort of the way i sort of view dave in the band is he's he's sort of the muscle because he is um you know he is an incredibly talented guitarist and uh, you know he he he's very good at writing, doing these very tightly constructed, very heavy uh, riffs and solos that aren't sort of indulgent when you think of '70s guitar rock. That's not where Dave is coming from. But if you listen, for instance, to the guitar solo, and you really got me. I mean, people thought that Jimmy Page wrote that because it was just so good. And when you listen to these early albums, like for instance, did you listen to Milk Cow Blues? Um, you know, this is, and Kink Controversy is sort of the last album where Dave, or Ray doesn't really have the songwriting firepower to sustain an entire LP. And that's where I think this, that record Kink Controversy really holds up in a lot of respects as sort of this, one of the, one of those great sort of mid sixties British blues rock albums. And, and I think a lot of credit on that front goes to goes to dave who is you know he gets overshadowed in the band i mean how how could you not be overshadowed (laughs) when your older brother is ray davis but you know dave had has this really interesting way of making himself heard without imposing himself on the songs and um and and really adding value in interesting in different ways and, and 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 sort of bringing his own individual touches to things without getting in front of Ray and his songwriting genius. And I, I think that I just point that out, especially in the early records before Ray's songwriting really takes off. It, I think it's more, you know, it's, it, it's as much Dave's band as Ray's up through the first three records in a lot of respects, I would say. Yeah. And we go to face to face. I don't just going to have more thoughts on, on this, but this is again, first real time you've got, uh, Ray Davis writing about English class and social structures and, and what the, the era would, would be defined by, the Kinks era of that time would be defined by. Uh, I, 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 I keep hearing these Kinks songs as I, as I listen back and think, no one else could pull this off. No one else writes from this perspective and no one else could write this song. Like Session Man from Face to Face, it's it's literally about a session man. I mean, it's about a, uh, a guy who goes into the studio and plays his part in a, in a band and then, and then leaves. He's not paid to think, just play. 
It's about Nicky Hopkins, literally. Yeah. That's who it was written as, a tribute to. And I, I don't know, I don't know another band that pulls it off quite as well as as Ray Davis and, and the Kinks do. Um, you know, there's a song called Dandy on Face to Face, which Jeff had alluded to that that phrase. You know, two girls, too many, three's a crowd, four, you're dead. There's this uh, disgust yet admiration in the lyrics for this ladies' man, uh, man about town, um, and Sunny Afternoon, which um, which. Is is complaining about the high levels of tax, much like Tax Man from the Beatles, right around the same time. Save me from this squeeze. I have a big fat mama trying to break me in this wonderful walk down bass line through sunny afternoon, face to face. Just I can't say enough about the, the, the giant leap forward. And King Controversy was very good, but this this leap that they made from King Controversy to face to face, a big move forward in both songwriting and in performance, I think as well. It was the only album where you ever saw the Kinks try to, even in a hesitating way, touch a vaguely psychedelic vibe. And then some of that shows up on things like Too Much On My Mind, Rainy Day in June, particularly Fancy, which is the second time that uh, Davis ever experimented with Indian modalities. And he, he of course, what I, what I give him such credit for is he didn't do it by like throwing on tamboras and sitars and all the window dressing that you would expect from a band that's sort of, you know, you know, playing musical drag. No, instead he turned it into this weird acoustic drone where he bends the notes and he sings in a very hypnotic, raga-like sense, sort of like a softer version of See My Friends. It's one of the highlights on the album. This is an album that's composed almost entirely of highlights. The only thing I would say against it is it ends a little more weakly than it begins. I think there are two songs on the end of it that, that don't do anything for me that feel like filler. Uh, You're looking fine and I'll remember. Uh, would have been much better off putting on I'm Not Like Everybody Else, which is a classic, classic B-side from that era onto the record. But this album is so consistent in its flow. The first six songs, six, seven songs, just roll into each other. You, you, you also have... Uh, a really comfortable mid-period where they're capable of still playing like convincing rock in their early 60s style, but also dabbling in all these other colors, pianos, ballads, um, you know, interesting social commentary. Party Line is the first song. You know, it's mm-hmm. a straight up, you know, I think it's sung by Dave, actually, even though it's not written by him. Um, it's a straight up song Dave, about... By the way, Dave, if Dave Davies is list, ever listens to this, I, I just want to point out Dave, <clears throat> Dave claims he did write Party Line. Oh, well, there you go then. <laughs> because, you know, I sometimes wonder when I hear him singing, I'm like, well, why didn't he write that? It, it On the lead-off track, no less. Right, right. Yeah. Is she big, is she small? Is she a she at all? Who's on my party line? Wish I had a more direct connection. This party line was here when I arrived. And I'm not voting in the next It's a fantastic song, and then it's about, like, I'm on a party line. For those, of course, who this is something that is completely alien in the modern <laughs> world, the idea that, like, you picked up a phone and there was an operator who connected you to someone else and that multiple people could all be listening in on the same line. This is not phone taps, mind you. But, uh, you know, Ray Davis, uh, if he indeed wrote those lyrics, um, turns it into an interesting metaphor for feeling like you're always being watched. And that there's 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 nothing that you can do that isn't being surveilled or seen or observed by other parties, and that you you're losing that feeling of privacy. And then it rolls straight into another beautiful autobiographical song called "Rosie, Won't You Please Come Home." It's about Dave's sister who uh, ventured off with her husband to Australia. Mm-hmm. 
a thing that will be a plot point in a later album, mind you. Dandy, one of my favorite songs on that record. Again, a song that anybody can pick up an acoustic guitar and learn how to play. Brilliantly, simply written, but with such a hilarious lyric, both mocking and admiring. I assume it's his brother he's writing about, Dave. Um, too Much On My Mind, Session Man, Rainy Day in June. You can just keep rattling off the hits on this song, on this album, until you're, you're blue in the face. And, of course, it all ends with Sunny Afternoon. Sunny Afternoon was the last hit the Kinks had in the United States. I think the last hit the Kinks had in, in Great Britain, for that matter, for four years. I think it was between this and then Lola. Not even Waterloo Sunset did that well, as much as everybody praises it. Sunny Afternoon was the end of the Kinks' hit-making era, and what a fantastic commentary it is. He sings from the point of view of uh, basically uh, the kind of person who you should hate, a, a rich, lazy, wealthy you know, scumbag sitting on his yacht who inherited his money from the family and is, is angry that the tax man is taking it all away. And yet, for some reason, you find yourself identifying with this guy who, in any other context, you would think, well, yeah, you know, it serves him right. What has he ever contributed to society? It's a brilliant song. It is so funny. It is so witty. And just as a piece of music, it has all of the pop virtues. It is concise. It is catchy. And it's a deeply influential song. Because if you listen to Sunny Afternoon, that, that galumping, the do, 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 that beat. Uh, you can imagine a world where um, Revolver is released or is never released, and uh, it has no effect on the Rolling Stones. But Between the Buttons, which I consider to be one of the Rolling Stones' finest albums, does not exist without Sunny Afternoon, without Dead End Street, and without the Face to Face album. Half the songs on Between the Buttons, which I consider to be one of the Stones' most underrated albums, are completely nicked off of the modes that Ray Davis is working in on Face to Face. So on he this, had at least one major fan, and that's Mick Jagger. On this topic real quick, I, I meant to look this up, and I didn't. Um, let's spend the night together. I, I hear a lot of that in David Watts, which is the first track from something else, the next album. Wh which came first? I, don't, I, I forgot to look up the years on that. Uh, I, I think technically David Watts was recorded first, but I, those those are much more contemporaneous. I don't think that I think actually you can look at something like Situation Vacant on the next album. It's my favorite song on something else by the Kinks from 1967. That to me seems to be a very clear kind of tribute that Ray Davis noticed that the Stones were copping ideas from him <laughs> on Between the Buttons. And so he copped one back from them because that sounds like the Stone song, cool, calm and collected, sort of slowed down and repurposed. Uh, but it was just interesting, if you're really a fan of this era, to see that this dialogue that goes back and forth between the bands where they listen to each other's records and they draw inspiration from them. And uh, again, I just say to everybody, please buy Face to Face. Get the version that has all of the B-sides from that era, including the big non-album single that was a flop and it never should have flopped because it's one of the finest things that the Kinks ever did. It's called Dead End Street. Again, writing about things that people just don't write about. He's writing about, you know, people who have failed in life. You know, they're living in a hovel or in like, you know, a tenement apartment in the middle of the city. They can't get ahead. They don't feel like they have any hope. Uh, they don't feel like they have anywhere to go. It's a very depressing subject, but he turns it into just this magnificently blistering pop song that, again, who was writing this in November of 1966? Nobody was writing this in November of 1966. Nobody was writing this for the rest of the decade, for that matter. This is why, this is where the Kinks become truly a singular act. Yeah, I, I think that uh, fa Face to Face is the first great Kinks LP. And I, I think, um, I mean, I agree with everything you said, Jeff. And I think that Face to Face is where Ray 
he had, you know, the handful of singles, some of the singles that he had done were pointing in a more sort of a social commentary direction, right? Where have all the good times gone? Dedicated follower fashion, right? Dead End Street. All of these songs are sort of pointing in, in, in toward a, a social consciousness that I, I don't think any of the other bands in the 60s really were able to pull off because I, I think they were, frankly, they were too stoned to be that grounded in the real, real world, right? But, and I, but I think Face to Face is the first record, and I, I think that it's going to define... Ray starts to be... In Face to Face, he begins to offer a, a worldview that I, I actually think he pursues this argument. He's making an argument, I think, across the LPs over the next decade. I mean, I think that the argument runs all the way through uh, their goofball, um, their their goofball RCA big over-the-top theater records. Um, and it's it, he's got this juxtapica- juxtaposition um, that on, on the one hand, he has this very sort of... Um, critical attitude of post-war middle-class Britain, right? And this sort of, this obsession with status and quote-unquote luxuries and acquisitions. Um, and, and he thinks that the whole thing is really bottomed on a lie, that people are just sort of conforming with everybody else and in the prospect they're losing their humanity. So for instance, you see that um, in, in Dandy, he got House in the Country, I think, is a great example of this. It's sort of like, I don't have to be a good person anymore because I have a house house in the country, <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, and also he sort of suggests that this this way of life is an impoverished way of life. He, he, he does that on, you know, um, he does that on Sunny Afternoon and also Most Exclusive Residence for Sale. And I, I think in contrast to that, uh, this, this, it's really a lamentation of, progress in post-war Britain or really just in the post-war West, right? Um, and his, I think his argument is, is that this sort of material obsession with material goods and obsession with status has under, undermined virtue and undermined happiness. And, and he doesn't quite do it. He, he, he doesn't quite offer in face to face. He doesn't quite offer the alternative, but you know, as we see, as he move on into something else, and then especially in Village Green, where he starts talking about uh, the English countryside as an al- as as an alternative, uh, as a superior way of of life, offering a superior way of life. And what he's he's going to argue, I think, it, it, he sort of already hints at that with like, where have all the good times gone? Um, and also, I think the the sadness in Rosie, the the song mm-hmm. Rosie. Um, the idea being is that a sim- that the English countryside is going to offer a simpler way of life that a- allows one to appreciate, you know, nature and beauty and get a good night's sleep and friendship. And I actually think like Sunny Afternoon is a great example of of that sort of early hint, right? Because here's this wealthy jerk whose entire life has fallen apart, but at the end, he's got a nice beer and a sunny afternoon. Ha <laughs> ha. 
And it's a, it's a theme that pops up through his songwriting really for the next decade. It's sort of like this quiet appreciation of nature. Some people will call it lazy, you know? Um, but and Ray sort of like I don't care if you call it lazy. This is what life is about, you know. And it's sort of the beginning of this argument that he he makes over the next decade, really. And I think that is a level. I said it's like it's not just that Ray is able to write these biting social commentaries that like other people can't pull off. It's that they're all sort of related, and his he's he comes at things with a consistent point of view and the criticism of British society. Um, is really very very sharp and it's it's not it's not a, it's not you know it's really surprising considering this is just he's like a 20 year old guy at this point <laughs> that anybody could you know you could you could make such a sophisticated nuanced critique of society and then to do so in a way that is not like you know like pound you on the head with with preaching right he just does it through these character sketches but then also when you listen to it it's like you think oh okay this is just you know this is like this kind of pseudo intellectual crap that a lot of these rock stars you know like george harrison you know snorting a mountain of cocaine while he's talking about maya (laughs) give me a break you know like that but it's actually a lot more uh sophisticated than that it's a really very challenging argument that he's making i think I mean, and if you thought he was going to abandon this approach with face-to-face, if you thought this was a one-off, well, he laughs right in your face and he doubles down immediately with something else, the next album, which, of course, where he does songs like Lazy Old Son and Afternoon Tea, End of the Season, songs that are specifically about, like, we're going to sit back, we're going to slow down, we're going to enjoy or at least acknowledge and appreciate the, the, the more sedate aspects of life. To me, something else is interesting, not only for that, but because it, it also marks the emergence of Dave uh, as a songwriter. For the next two to three years, from 67 to 70, on, on all these albums, and of course the B-sides as well, you find Dave Davis finding his songwriting voice in a way that he had never previously been able to do. Uh, this is Political Beats, presentation of National Review. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Jay Cost with us today from the Weekly Standard. Find him on uh, Twitter, at TWS talking about the kinks remember subscribe to our feed uh, new episodes mondays itunes google play stitcher tune in nationalreview.com as well listen leave reviews uh something else which jeff uh just mentioned has um what not just i mean so many songwriters say it's the best one of the best songs ever written in waterloo sunset um originally liverpool sunset it was a favorite place for ray and dave to visit and play Change it to Waterloo Sunset. Pete Townsend called it a masterpiece. Uh, Rhett Miller of the old 97s, who I love, uh, I read him call it the greatest song ever written by a human being. Uh, Waterloo Sunset is really good. And it's one of those songs, again, just because of the lack of, of airplay on, on radio, that how many people perhaps have heard this song that many great, great songwriters say is, is a total masterpiece. Um, and Waterloo Sunset really is a masterpiece. And I also want to just kind of add this into the mix as we talk about something else. And, and this is the middle of the American touring ban that the Kinks were facing. So they, had, they hadn't toured America since 1965 when they were banned by the American Federation of Musicians. Uh, Ray Davis in his biography, autobiography, says it was they were taping something, I think, with Dick Clark's TV show. Some TV guy walked by and started making fun of the British and saying, you know, the Beatles did it. Now everyone thinks they can come over and do the same thing the Beatles did. There were punches thrown, or at least a punch thrown, 
and uh, and they were they were banned. They, they were not allowed to tour in the U.S. again by the American Federation Federation of Musicians. That lasted until 1970, and so I think it's undeniable it impacted their uh, success in the U.S. You can't tour behind any of your albums. Touring was very important back then. I mean, as it is today, of course, too. But they couldn't tour anywhere in the uh, anywhere in in the U.S. Um, and I wonder how much that impacted the songwriting too of of Ray Davis as well. I mean, I don't. I don't think it, it can be denied that it clearly focused him on, you know, UK concerns. And sort of when you're staying there and you're only jetting off occasionally to like play Scandinavia or Beirut <laughs> or whatever it is, then, then obviously you're not going to be getting that American experience, which is of course particularly seductive for English-speaking musicians in the United Kingdom because it's the same language, different culture, though, and of course the vastness, the wide-open spaces. America has an influence on everybody who comes here and spends time here. It's just an undeniable fact. So his isolation from us was probably all to the benefit of the Kinks' music, and in, in terms of him getting more and more, you know, involuted, you know, just diving into that that mm-hmm. specific vision of the past and of you know British civic culture that he had always been interested in pursuing. I always have always wondered though, how is it the Kinks of all people right. were the only band to ever get banned? <laughs> I mean, the Rolling Stones were regularly tossing water bombs filled with urine on people and doing all the drugs in any given town at any one point. How is it that the Kinks got banned? <laughs> yeah, I think that's just their fate. You know, they, that that seems to be the story of the Kinks. You know, uh, they, they, you know, they, they sort of uh, their 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 commercial fortunes were never ne- never tied really to their artistic talent. You know, so they ended up they had you know I mean by goodness Keith 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 Moon drive right. a car into a swimming pool. <laughs> At a Holiday Inn, and the only thing that happened to the Who was they got banned from Holiday Inn. And I mean, Led Zeppelin doing God knows what with groupies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> God doesn't even want to know. <laughs> um, I just want to point out, though, on the song Waterloo Sunset, I think, like, Water- Waterloo Sunset is such a great song. It's such a gorgeous melody. But if you, the lyrics of it is, is really, like, you find in the lyrics almost a microcosm of the, arg- the race point during this period, right? Because... You know, it's such a pretty song, you know, I mean, the melody of it is so pretty, but the, uh, but it, it's actually this sort of like a story about what is a really ugly place, right? A dirty old river, must you keep rolling, flowing into the night? People so busy, make me feel dizzy, taxi light shines so bright. And later on, he talks about people swarming like flies, right? Millions of people swarming like flies round Waterloo underground sort of like urban kind of almost kind of a hellscape almost right where it's just dirty polluted overcrowded all of these you know artificial lights and everything but ray finds himself at peace in the song as the as the as the narrator finds himself at peace because he can look at the sun right and 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 then he tells this other story about terry and julie who also similarly find themselves at peace because they find they fall in love with each other, 
um, and they and, and they they walk in the opposite direction of you know they cross over the over the river as opposed to everybody else sort of um, swarming like flies is what he says. I, it's just sort of this great sort of Ray's Ray's ability to or his ability to sort of make a point, right? And the point is is that all these people are missing the real genuine pleasures in life as they're swarming around, you know, all the well-respected men swarming around like flies, Waterloo Station, you know, the Carnabetian Army are in the same the same album he calls them the Tin, tin Soldier Men, you know, everybody's dressed up the same. It's almost like, you know, the people at at Waterloo Station are all the tin soldier men that he he mocks earlier on, and and here Ray Ray is not among them, and he's finding peace and quiet in a sunset, um, and and that's something he's gonna you know that he's gonna take that and, and elaborate it in in Village Green, but it's a very interesting interesting thing for really just a, a city kid from London because it's you know the, they're the, Ray Daver from Muswell Hill and so they're not from like the English countryside mm -hmm. you know and uh, it's just really interesting that he would find this kind of this this uh, this idea of all the of all the singer songwriters of the period that Ray Davis would be the one to sort of be the be the one to criticize London, London commercial, and not just London though. I mean, because there's also it's a criticism of the, the post-war West and the you know the the, the material prosperity of the '60s. I mean, he's making an argument that there's something really, um, really deadening about it. I've never thought that Waterloo Sunset is like the most beautiful song ever written in the English language. All these these really and. I think overstated encomiums that are written about it. It's a beautiful song. Uh, I don't know if I even think it's the best song on that album. I think Situation Vacant or maybe Dave's Death of a Clown, which is sort of about him having to become more of a, a house cat and settle down, uh, are, are better and funnier in some ways. Um, but what I think is striking about Waterloo Sunset uh, is its magnificent lyric, as Jay says, the grace of it the grace of it to find in all the ugliness and you have this beautiful backing track but yes as you said that you, you listen to the lyrics and it's set in a very grim area it's kind of gross everybody's swarming around it's you know it's jam-packed and it's gray and it's ugly and it to find the beauty there to find a way to be happy in a place where other people would not be happy that takes such maturity that is so unexpected, again, for people of that age or that upbringing, that it, it's what I think everybody gloms onto with that song. The only thing I will also say about something else in all of the Kinks albums up until this point is that I weep at their production. We haven't really spent much time talking about Shell Tommy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was the Kinks producer. He was the Who's producer for their first album, My Generation, famously. Uh, and he produced all the Kinks uh, albums up until something else. Mm -hmm. And uh, heaven help me, he did a terrible job with them, in my opinion. I think it's also the masters for those records have been stored poorly and so, like, remixing them isn't really an option. We're just stuck with what we've got. It's a shame because a song like Waterloo Sunset is a beautiful song that I do not think was ever properly done justice in its recording. And uh, it, that's a shame. And they, they perked up after this. I think the next several records the Kings did, once they finally ditched Shell Tommy, sound a heck of a lot better. Village Green. Yeah, I, point, I, I point out, too, that Shell Tommy wanted uh, – the, the original recording of You Really Got Me was a slow 
version mm-hmm. at, at Tommy's insistence and, and that the, the, the brothers thought that this was a mistake and, and that they had already struck out this, they, they were on their third strike or coming up on their third strike with, uh, with pie. Cause long tall Sally had struck out and you still want me struck out. So here they are. This is sort of like their last shot and shell Tommy insisted on it being slow. And they had to, if I'm not mistaken, I think they had to cobble the money together themselves to, to book, studio time to re- to record it um at, at the you know so they're, they're almost it's almost like they got their they got their big commercial break not because of tommy but actually in spite of him he was a terrible terrible producer i think in a lot of respects <laughs> and i do think there's a big uh leap forward in production value from something else which was ray's first uh, attempt to village green uh, Village Green Preservation Society, which uh, I think sounds a lot better. Uh, I think the, the drums are a little further up front. There's a there's a better sense of rhythm and how to produce it on Village Green, and um, I'm, I'm happy we're here. I love Village Green Preservation Society, um, and I love it because there is an endless amount of things to discover about it. The amount of musical innovation and especially lyrical innovation. I mean, Ray Davis is just completely on uh, hitting his stride as a songwriter on, on Village Green. The first, what, eight songs or so on this album are perfect. I mean, they're they're perfect <laughs> songs. Uh, Village Green, preser- Do You Remember Walter, the second song, uh, sounds like something that Jeff Lynn would steal later and just craft an ELO song around it. Uh, Picture Book is such a wonderful tune, so good that Green Day stole it for warning. Wouldn't be the last time they stole um, Do It Again for Walking Contradiction, another hit for Green Day later on. Uh, Johnny Thunder, inspired by the film The Wild One. Last of the good old-fashioned steam-powered trains is just a, it's just such a wonderful track. The, the speed up through the track like an actual train. Animal Farm with um, this world is big and wild and half insane. Take me where the animals are playing. Uh, that part of what's happening in Ray Davis's life at, at the time and, 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 and how it's uh, transformed into his lyrics. Uh, Village Green Preservation Society takes this, you know, sentimental, nostalgic tone to the next level, the passing of old-fashioned English traditions. And again, every time I listen to Village Green, I'm hearing something new. It is so dense uh, in a good way uh, and so rewarding on multiple listens. Uh, Just a huge, huge fan of Village Green. It's their best album. And what I can say about it, the best thing I can possibly say about it is that if you're listening to this podcast and for some reason you haven't heard it or you don't own it, you should just turn this off, pause it, come back to us later, and go get the album. Listen to it right now. It's one of those things where only one song is ever really played on it, which is the title track, made mm-hmm. it to a couple compilations. A very good song. Not even close. I don't even think it's in the top seven songs on that album. Um, Do You Remember Walter? is a song that the song that hooked me i remember i told you guys about how this is the first kinks album i really bought heard the first song i was like okay well i've heard that before good okay the second song is called do you remember walter and i remember hearing it as an 18 year old kid i'm 18 i'm not the most mature guy in the world yeah i haven't seen and done a lot that song wrecked me emotionally and it's still hits me hard to this day it is one of the most moving things I've ever, ever heard in pop music about how people grow old. They let go of their childhood dreams. They let go of those friendships and attachments that they had when they were younger, and they sort of compromise and they settle down. And uh, 
but that doesn't have to be the way that we have to remember things. We don't have to be sad. It, it's a, just the most brilliant lyric, married to very beautiful piano-based lyric. He goes, you know, Walter, do you remember when the world was young and all the girls knew Walter's name? And he talks about how all the good times they had when they were kids. You know, we promised ourselves we'd, you know, we'd save up all our money and buy a boat and sail away to sea, childhood dreams. But it was not to be. I knew you then, but do I know you now? And then that last verse just, oh, it just destroys me even thinking about it now. He says, Walter, you were just a world I knew so long ago. Uh, Walter, if I saw you now, I, I don't think I'd even know your name. Yeah, I'll bet you're fat and old and you're always up in bed by half past ten. And if we <laughs> talked about the good times, you'd get bored and you'd have nothing left to say. And that sounds so depressing, but it ends on a hopeful note. He says, you know, people often change, but memories of people can remain. I bet Then it fades out, beautiful music just goes, fades out this thumping piano line, and then it goes into a song called Picture Book, which is probably the poppiest thing on the record, I would say. And people might used know it a, because somebody used it for a, a camera uh, or yeah, a Kodak. Kodak. Yeah, Kodak. Kodak. Somebody did. And it was brilliant. But again, just thematically so perfect as a follow-up. You know, you're talking about looking through pictures of your mama and your papa, yeah. your goofy aunt, grandma, beautiful little, you know, very clever, clever pop tune, by the way. I mean, this stuff is just, as you say, Ray Davis is not just a good lyricist. If it was all about the lyrics, this could get ponderous. This could get boring. Picture Book is an, an incredibly tightly written pop song with all these little contrasting sections. There's that little sha-la-la-la-la-la-la-la <laughs> middle eight section that just brings it all back home. These songs are endlessly rewarding. Johnny Thunder. The other one that's, that sings to me, uh, other two, are Animal Farm, which yeah. Scott mentioned, as a, a, an escape, a respite. You know, he, he talks about how, you know, the, you know, this world is big and wide and half insane. It's just awful. But I just want to go out to the country and, you know, see all the, the animals running around and just sort of escape from it. And it's sick to this very uplifting music. And to your point, and, Jeff, the production on yeah. Animal Farm specifically, that song is fantastic. It's got a Big sound, which I don't know that they had before. The, the reverb on the drums is huge. That song particularly is produced very well. The thing is, is that Davey's getting into some interesting musical modes here. He's not just writing standard guitar ballads. There's a song near the end called Monica, another great song. It's a samba. It's a very well-executed samba where it's like doo-doo, 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 boo-boom, boo-boom, always off-kilter, very South American, a Latin rhythm. Last thing you would have expected from the Kinks, much less expecting them to execute it so perfectly but it just it has a joy a breezy joy that is really absent from so much of their other work and then the last song is this thing that almost sounds twee but when you listen to it more and more it becomes more and more moving called people take pictures of each other mm -hmm. and if you listen to what the lyric is it's so profound is that people take pictures of each other just to prove that they really existed just to prove that they wouldn't have missed it. It actually nails, like, well, why does why does selfie culture exist? Why do people even still today do this? Why does everybody memorialize everything? Why do you see people standing in art galleries taking stupid photographs of 
paintings when they could obviously just get a better looking image of it on Google. It's because they have to memorialize their own presence at that place at that time. The fact that they were there doing this thing is what makes it worth remembering to them. It gives it meaning. It gives meaning to them. And it, it takes that silly ritual. Uh, everyone's snapping pointless you know, photographs that you look through in a box someday or in the modern day you look through in your, you know, your cloud online. And it, and it renders it much more poignant than you would have ever thought imaginable. Fifteen songs of this, all of them are well executed, and the best song from those entire sessions wasn't even released on the record. It's called Days. It's a non-album single. Thank you for the days. My God, folks, this is the record you've got to get from the Kinks. Yeah, I think. Um, first of all, I love I love Days. I, I I've always enjoyed Days more than uh, Waterloo Sunset, actually. Um, I and it. Uh, um, it's on Village Green where Ray Ray really digs into this these ideas that he had been hinting at in the in just here and there tangentially. I mean, face to face and something else were really primarily insofar as he was, you know, saying something. It was mostly critical, right? He was criticizing um, commercial British city life, and here he comes out and he and he starts praising. British country life, and and I think that what what he's doing here is that he's really sort of making the point that, you know, it's in the countryside where things slow down, and you can appreciate. I mean, how many songs on this album does he have about nature in one form or another? He's got a bunch of songs about nature. He's got uh, he's got songs about genuine love and affection, not romantic love, but family love, and all of these things are sort of virtues and things that. Um, that can be appreciated on in the Village Green, but not on Carnaby Street, not at, not at Waterloo Station. And it's also, he also picks up this theme, and this theme is, this is a theme that he is going to keep coming back to um, later on, even on uh, Schoolboys in Disgrace, for instance, which at this point is still like seven years away, but that song, Walter. And he's got other songs on this album too, like Phenomenal Cat, um, where this sort of, it's almost like child, you know, if the, the village green is the place to best live the virtuous, happy life, then ch- childhood is almost the frame of mind that you want to get in, according to Ray, to be as happy as possible. The simple pleasures of, of childhood, um, where you're just really interested in the little things in life. And I think that's what really he's on about in these records is sort of like it's the little things in life. Um, you know, and he, he says this, um, he says this in, uh, in Muswell Hillbillies in Oklahoma, uh, USA he says all life we work, work is a bore. If life's worth, if life's for living, what's living for. Right. And this is sort of like village green is his sort of statement about, well, this is what life is. This is what living life is. Um, but it, there's this sort of like, like Walter, I think is, is a, is a, sort of suggests kind of the dark undertones to his view of things too because just as sort of like youth kind of falls away and that the simple pleasures of youth are lost and that Walter 
is, I mean, Ray very capriciously, I think, just assumes that Walter's just, the, you know, another another tin soldier man now, right? Um, uh, Ray being Ray just assumes that Walter is not, uh, you know, not not really happy anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, but this sort of idea of, like, like youth is, is, is the time when you're, you're the most happy, but that also this, you know, that, you, you know, you get older and you lose that part of your past, but then, you know, also Ray's going to, you know, begin to argue that the old ways of doing things are actually under assault from the, the world at large. Right. Cause the two, you know, if, 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 if his first forays into social commentary is sort of setting up the, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, middle-class urban British, uh, you know, dandies on the one hand and the village green on the other hand, you know, there's sort of this culture clash coming in his songwriting that really happens. I think you begin to see it directly in Arthur, but he, it, it's sort of there in his lament about, about Walter. And I also think it's sort of there in his look in the the last of the steam power trains is that the, like, is that this is a, this is a happy, um, virtuous world that is being slowly destroyed, right? I mean, even the the the, the title song itself, right? Uh, the title track itself, it's it's like the village green needs a pr- needs mm-hmm. somebody to defend it <laughs> because it's under assault. It would need somebody to stand up for China cups and virginity because if we don't, then it's just going to be overrun by the acquisitive. A materialistic middle-class post-war capitalistic culture that is that is you know slowly sucking the life out of out of true uh, British virtue. Political beats uh, presentation of National Review. Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, our guest Jay Cost from the Weekly Standard at Jay Cost TWS on Twitter. We're talking about the Kinks, and Jay just mentioned Arthur, the follow-up album to Village Green. A lot of echoes uh, from Village Green into Arthur. It was supposed to be uh, made with a uh, TV movie. It was supposed to be a TV movie soundtrack. The TV movie lost its financing, basically, and so it became a follow-up album for uh, for the Kinks. It's it's a little harder-edged, um, a little harder than, um, than Village Green, I think. But the story is a London man who moves to Australia after World War II, and it's a real story, based on a real story, of uh, Ray and Dave's brother-in-law, who moved with uh, with their sister to Australia. I, I, I was reading Dave Davies, uh, Dave Davis telling a story about when Ray found out, or um, just after they actually had made that move to Australia, Ray like, ran to the beach and just started screaming and crying and impacted him so much. He had lost his sister previously to... Uh, Actually, a death on a dance floor, which will come up uh, later, and a separate song. And now he had another sister moving, you know, across the globe to Australia, and it really impacted him. And we see the songwriting on Arthur, which starts with one of my favorite Kinks tracks, Victoria. It's a, a sardonic, uh, s- a satirical celebration of of the glory of of, of England.
Um, there's horns on this album. There's a horn arrangement on Yes Sir, No Sir, which is really great. Uh, driving, um, a little sense of escapism, not just from life, but from kind of the other themes on the album as well. It's a nice funky bass track. Uh, again, some horns on Driving as well. Uh, Shangri-La, the centerpiece, I think, of the album, this slow acoustic number that builds to this beast of a, of, of a song. Um, Arthur is, 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 again, I think, an excellent, excellent album from, from the Kinks. It doesn't reach the heights of Village Green, but, but you know, few do. Arthur is a great follow-up, though, with many of the same yeah, themes, many of the same songwriting patterns involved. Yeah, I think um, I... I, I know what Jeff's I know what Jeff's going to say about the record, and I, I probably am somewhere in between the two of you. I I think that Arthur is musically it's not as it's not as good as Village Green. Um, I, what gets me about Arthur more than anything is just how dark it is. It is a very dark, gloomy record, right? Where I mean, you think about this. You think about the first couple tracks on it, you know, Yes Sir and No Sir and Some Other Son and Victoria. It's this, you know, this all the sacrifices that the British people have made over the last hundred years to build this empire, right, for whatever that's worth. And Ray, of course, being Ray, sort of suggests, at least in Victoria, that it's not actually worth that much. But then you go into this song, Brainwash, and it, again, it's just like, what was the point of all of our struggles? It's almost as if Ray's asking, what is the point of everything that British the British people have done over the last hundred years? Because now, you know, um, now we all we look like real human beings, but we don't have minds of our own, you know. There, and uh, and and that uh, you know that there's a there's an impoverished kind of quality to uh, to British life, and and also like that, that you know the other thing that's interesting about it too is that Arthur, you know, obviously it's it's about it's about their brother-in-law, Rain Dave's brother-in-law, but you know that's really sort of an you know you know because. What Arthur is doing in this, right, is that that he's actually Arthur is actually running away. Uh, he's he's trying to get away from this brainwashed existence, but he's not. He can't do it. it, it you know, um, you know. He uh, and I think it's the song Arthur. You know, where they say, you know, you can cry all night, but it won't make it right. Don't you know it? You know, like, and and then uh, in Young and Innocent Days, he talks about it. Be, it's be, it's too late. Um, you know, he goes off to Australia, right? Because the, the story, the, the the story of the album, such as there is a story, um, is that Arthur at is this post-war, as you said, Scott. He's this post-war br- middle-class British guy who's tired of being in the center. You know, the aristocrats and bureaucrats are dirty rats for making you what you are. They're up there, you're down there, you're on the ground, and they're up with the stars. And so Arthur's just gonna like, I'm out of here, right? So, and but then he goes to Australia, and he. He builds, you know, a Shangri-La, as it's called, and he just ends up in the exact same spot. At the end of the album, he's just sitting on a on a couch with nothing to say. I mean, that's one of the last. That's I think that's the penultimate song on the record. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a very very pessimistic album, and it's just and because again, right? Ray, Ray's picking up on the, this theme of sort of the pleasure of simple things in life, like with driving and the pleasures of youth and childhood with young and his innocent days, but the whole thing's under assault. So Arthur's going to get out and he, he can't get out at the end. He's just, you know, he's still stuck in the same Western malaise, you know, and uh, at the end, you know, Ray and Dave sing at the end, they harmonize, you know, we sympathize with you, Arthur, but there's nothing they can do for him. 
you know, it's I, I think that this is sort of the start where, you know, I, I think Arthur, Lola and and Muswell Hillbillies are all very they, they, these are records with really dark undercurrents to them, really, where if, if Village Green is sort of pleasant and, and sort of nice and, you know, in the back of your mind, this is an old decaying way or maybe it's getting a little outdated or whatever. But now Ray's talking about a culture clash and the good guys are losing in his mind. I will say this about Arthur. This, to me, is an ominous sign of what would happen throughout the later 70s, mid-70s with the, with the band, which is where the concept slowly begins to conquer the music. Half of this album, musically, is pretty good, all right? And I respond to music, first of all. If you, your lyrics, I don't care how compelling your conceit is, I respond to interesting darkness, I respond to all sorts of things. But if your music isn't gripping, especially if you have a, a general, you know, a tonal approach that can be fairly limited at times, I am not going to respond to it. And Arthur sacrifices interesting music at 10 for the conceit that it is seeking to serve. There are songs on this record that are pointless. She's bought a hat like Princess Marina. I get the concept. It's supposed to be a comment on social mores. Oh, we're trying to attempt to keep up. Look at how sad and hollow this exercise really is. The, the music is is crap. It, it's not worth your time. Uh, Young and Innocent Days feels the same way to me. Braidwashed feels the same. Australia goes on for far too long. There are three songs on this record that are absolute genius and among the best the Kinks have ever recorded. Victoria, obviously. Shangri-La, right in the middle of the album, obviously. That's actually one of the best-sounding songs the Kinks ever recorded in the 60s. That break in the middle where the acoustic cars, acoustic guitars come thumping in after the final you know, Shangri-La build-up. That's genuinely exciting music. Mm -hmm. And then the last song, Arthur. Arthur, we love you. We want to help you. Don't you know it? Don't you know it? A really wonderful song. I think that it's it's a it's less dark than Jay thinks it is. I think it's 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 a consolatory number. I really like those three songs, beginning, middle, and end. But what surrounds it, other than maybe yes sir, no sir, which I think is is a pretty well written song, I find to be shockingly a step down from the quality of the Kings of the Village Green Preservation Society and uh, from what would come afterwards on an album that, that I think gets uh, dismissed far more, which is the Lola album. I think it's a much better album than people give it credit for. I think a big problem with Arthur is the absence of Dave Davis from this record as a songwriter. The best music from this era, in my opinion, was released on B-sides, Dave Davis B-sides of otherwise failed Kinks singles. Drive-In was released as a single. It flopped. This drive-in itself is not a very good song, but on its B-side is an amazing song written by Dave Davis called uh, Mindless Child of Motherhood, which is written about an incredibly painful episode of Dave Davis's actual life where he fathered a son with a girl who was forced to keep it and then forced to give it away and was forced to never tell him that any of this had ever happened. He only learned six, seven years later that he had – conceived a child who was born and then was given away to an orphanage and that he would never be able to find that child again. I know that it's And 
that was an incredibly painful thing for him to write, which is why the song is so absolutely tortured. It's one of the most powerful rock songs the Kinks have ever released, ever recorded. I think it's even more coruscating than anything from their early singles period. I for the life of me, cannot understand why they consigned it to a B-side, although I suppose the reason is, is that Ray wanted to serve the premise of the concept album, mm. which just goes to show you what happens when you start throwing away quality music material in search of some conceit that you feel like you're beholden to. This Manny Weeps Tonight is another great B-side. These songs are better than what made it onto the album. The best Kinks music from 1969, aside from the three songs on Arthur, are found elsewhere they're found outside of their albums that to me was a bad sign i'm glad that they made a recovery with their next album which was the one with the big hit that everyone knows a song about <laughs> a happy transvestite that ray davis met down at old soho where they drink champagne and it tastes just like cherry cola c-o-l-a cola or coca-cola <laughs> before they force him to fly across the atlantic to re-record the lyric Right. <laughs> yes, I used the single version lyrics. Good job. Uh, yeah, Lola's next, and this is, um, it's thought of as being the album with the single, which it is, of course, but there is so much more to it. Uh, the the uh, lyrics turn a bit toward what raise bitter feelings toward the music industry. There's a lot of it on there. In fact, I think uh, there's a couple of different versions of the Lola story. It might have been, uh, what, their manager who, who had gone home with the transvestite, but anyway, um you know, money go round. Uh, Ex manager bashing. Where do the, where do the dollars go? Ray's not seeing enough. Um, you've got, uh, I think, a denser, more muscular production uh, starts on this album as well. Uh, the, the, most of it is. It, it sounds a little harder. It sounds more radio ready. I guess is the way I would describe it. Perhaps why Lola struck a, a deeper chord with the public at that time. There's a great uh, Dave Davies uh, track, Strangers, uh, about an old school friend who died of a drug overdose. Uh, Dave's songwriting is, is really keen uh, on that track. Um, toward the end of the album, the back-to-back -back Ape Man and Power Man, boy, that might be, it's one of my favorite back-to-back -back moments on a Kinks album. Uh, Ape Man is such a, a great tune again but you know ray the escapism sailing away to a distant shore and be an ape man and live in the jungle um really kind of almost summarizing what he's been writing about for the past few albums this this nostalgic streak this uh, escapism getting away from uh, modern society and luxuries and just living in the jungle and being an ape man and and power man just after that uh, power man is one of those tunes i have no idea why again, like a classic rock programmer doesn't hear P Power Man and say, "Why aren't we playing this this Kinks track?" Man, this hard rock uh, track with an amazing riff and that bridge in the song is fantastic. I love the Eight Man Power Man back to back right at the end of Lola. Again, outside of the single, which everybody knows, and uh, Wes Anderson knows the rest of it too, because it's used in uh, what Darjeeling, Darjeeling Limited, and I think another one of his movies too. There is so much good stuff throughout Lola. Yeah, this is the album that they, the critics and the fans like to dismiss. They say, "Oh, it's not as good as Arthur. It's not as good as Muswell Hillbillies." 
Ray complains too much about the music business, blah, blah, blah. I don't, I don't care about any of that. I see songs like Get Back in Line, which is an amazing, sad ballad. Again, taking a very interesting and politicized shot at, like, union regulations. That union man who's so smug and he knows he's got it made, who makes fun of all of us here on the dole who can't get a job. What a strange tack to take. Pretty conservative, too. But again, the the second half of that record, with This Time Tomorrow and A Long Way From Home, I think those are two that Wes Anderson plundered for his movies. Fantastic songs, very touching, simple, spare ballads. I found myself asking, well, why do people not talk about these songs? Why did I keep hearing this album dismissed with no reference being made to these wonderful, small little tunes that can be found on them? I think Lola is a much better record than is commonly given credit for, and I also am just a huge fan of the single. I think Lola itself is a great song. It's not one of those singles that I'm tired of. It's not like, <laughs> oh, well, you know, the kinks are great, but I'm tired of Lola. No, I think Lola is as good as anything they've ever done, and it deserves to be as well-regarded as it is. I, I, you know, I think that uh, Lola doesn't get the credit it deserves, and I agree with you, Jeff. I think musically, I think it's so much more interesting than Arthur. I, I think your point about Arthur is generally, I, I generally agree with it. I think of all their, their, the albums they wrote from their creative summit, I think Arthur is their weakest. Although I think it's it's better than what you've suggested, and I think that Lola doesn't get the appreciation that it deserves. And I, it's easy to write Lola off as Ray Davies belly aching like, pay me, right? <laughs> I mean, and that's even, you know, because uh, his managers quit after that record. I mean, Grenville was a real, you know, and uh, Robert O's half to Grenville, Turk gave laughs. Yeah, those are real people. <laughs> those are real people. Like Ray, <laughs> Ray burns some bridges with that. And it's easy to sort of l- listen to this album as Ray complaining about money. But I don't think that's what he's really doing here. I think that he... And this is, and, and, and again, I think, the, you know, this, al- this album is even darker than Arthur uh, because and then, you know, because Ray himself is struggling, right? If like, if, if, if Village Green sort of sets up the idea of this sort of rustic, simple life of peace and happiness against the, the grubby kind of, um, you know, acquisitiveness of, of modern post-war Britain, you know, like Ray Lola is actually him struggling with that because one one side you you know songs like the Contenders and then Top of the Pops it's like he's very ambitious right like they, there's an ambitious ambitiousness to get yourself to the top of the charts and also you know this uh, Ray you know all the questions that the Ray posing as the interviewer and Top of the Pops asked but there's a seductiveness to it Ray's clearly being is talking about how he was seduced by um by uh by this but then also ultimately right in songs like a long way from home and gotta be free you know he's he's saying i you know it's it, it it's it's like um it's like uh you know being you know but being seduced by the serpent almost in the garden of eden right and that and and that's where i think like what the the two songs that stand out here i think are from our, our Lola and Eight Man, 
right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, eight man is this sort of a eight man could have been on, it runs the same kind of thematic gauntlet that village green runs, right? The simpler life is the happier life. Right. But Lola, I think is, is the key track on this album to understand where Ray's coming from. Because of course, if you judge by the title, right, that Lola is the protagonist of the album. Right. I mean, it's actually the, in the, the story, it's actually, you know, Ray himself is the is the protagonist, but Lola, it's Lola versus, right? I think in this, is, in, in this story, the it's about the song Lola. Like conceptually, it's built around here's the right. band who writes this hit single. Okay, well, and Lola, and who is Lola? Because Lola is this character in this this uh, you know a transvestite, somebody living outside of the boundaries of normal society, um, and 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 happy. You know, uh, and capable of making Ray happy in this, and I think there's something to that about it. It's it's strange because we think of the the Kinks as a conservative band mm-hmm. and this sort of defense of British society, traditional British society. Lola is the exact opposite of of traditional British society, but Lola's Lola is presented as being you know a happy. Complete person in a lot of respects, or somebody who's capable of saving Ray, and and I think it's uh, it, it, and it begins this sort of to develop this idea of you know Lola's on the outside just as the same way as the as the traditional British society is on the outside of this modern British way of doing things, and and that Ray is is struggling with the lure of fame and the lure of money and the lure of stardom. Um, to maintain himself as he as as he was when he was a child he talks about his childhood not so much in this album but always talking about his childhood and maintaining a semblance of who he truly was and also then dealing with the fact that you know song like get back into line in denmark street you know like these it was it was alluring right to become a pop star but he's since discovered that he's just got to he still just has to fall in line like everybody else and that this is not you know that he's not happy he's a man who decides if i live or i die if i stop or i eat This is another record that I think is a very unhappy record for for Ray personally, and I don't think it's coincidental that he's in the he's sort of you know heading towards at this point when Lola comes out he's he's just a couple years away from a genuine you know nervous breakdown. Mm. Political beats. It's Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, and our guest Jay Cost at Jay Cost T W S on Twitter, contributing editor at the Weekly Standard. We talk about the Kinks. Remember, subscribe to our feed. New episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or NationalReview.com on Mondays. And um, leave uh, reviews as well, please, won't you? Muswell Hillbillies is uh, the next release from The Kinks. This is one I'm, I'm just going to get out of the way. Uh, Jay loves it. This is one, um, it has never grabbed me the way that it has grabbed uh, others. Um, first one for RCA, they got a new record deal after Lola became a hit. Uh, st- songs about the lives of the working class. Uh, 20th Century Man is one I do love. 
from it. Uh, it's again, Ray on regrets and worries about the modern world. Uh, got no privacy, got no liberty. Um, you can keep all your smart modern painters. He wants the uh, uh, he wants the painters from years ago. Uh, Skin and Bones, a great track on the album as well. Uh, Oklahoma, USA, uh, a two and a half minute long track. But it just for me, Muswell Hillbillies has never grabbed me the way a lot of the other output of the Kinks has. And there's uh, I can't put a finger on it except to say that it doesn't. And I will leave you two perhaps to discuss why I'm wrong. Well, I'll be pretty brief. I'll simply say that this is the last great Kinks album, and I really don't think there's anything that, that comes afterward that measures up to it. I, it's not a sudden drop-off. I think Everybody's in Showbiz, is, you can see it sort of tailing off, and then after Everybody's in Showbiz, then I've got some real problems with what comes next. But uh, this one is a fantastic album that is in a very different vein from Lola. It doesn't have the hard rock moves that Lola has. It has sort of an interesting fusion of country and music hall. And I think the best uh, encapsulation of that is on my favorite song, the record, which is really uncharacteristic. Actually it's a have a cup of tea. Uh, this is a, a very kind of a music hall sort of a thing uh, where, you know, whatever the situation, whatever the Tino's no segregation, no class or pedigree, no motivation, no sector or organization. It knows one religion nor political belief. Tea in the evening, tea in the morning. It's just like a, it's a, a really wonderfully straightforward tribute to, hey, everybody sit back and enjoy your afternoon tea. It kind of revisits afternoon tea. And it's done in this very kind of semi-jaunty music hall style that is absolutely not to everyone's taste. So I can completely understand why a lot of people have never been grabbed by Muswell Hillbillies. But there's a reason it's so beloved by the fans. is because conceptual unity that still keeps the musical variety going. And it also feels like a small album in a nice way. The problem that I have with the rest of the music by the Kings going forward, at least up until Sleepwalker, is that it feels so pompous and so self-consciously grandiose, theatrical. We're trying to do these big, you know, conceits. Here's these long narratives. You know, hey, we can put this on the stage. We can play this at the West End if we want to. This is a country rock album. Uh, you know, at least as done by a bunch of guys from Muswell Hill. That to me is a much more modest and more compelling goal that because of those things makes the record far more successful. This is where the classic Kinks era ends in my opinion. Yeah, I this is my this is my favorite Kinks record. Um, and I think that it, it, it really is a culmination of I, I mean it it brings it brings you know the classic Kinks period at an end and I also think it's a sort of a culmination too. Um, and it, it's interesting, too, because I would point out, you know, Ray, it's an interesting kind of thing that he's doing across these records, right? With, you know, if you think about who the good guys are in these records, you know, the, the in Village Green, it's the quaint, quiet English countryside. In Lola, it's this transvestite in the city. And now here he brings in and sympathizes with uh, American people in the United States uh, um, who live in the country in the United States, all of these people, like what is this very diverse group of people have in common? I think it's, it's that they're all being, their lifestyle is being placed under threat by the conformity of, of modern life. And also this is, uh, this is the, you know, this is the album where Ray basically says, Oh, they're coming for you, right? They're going to come and they're going to take everything away from you. 
know, he hinted at that in Arthur, um, you know, but even on Lola, you know, there's sort of like this kind of seeming escape for him with like eight man. Well, I'll just give it all up and I'll go live somewhere far, far away. Right. But there's no getting away from the people in gray as, as they're called in this, in this album, here come the people in gray to take you away. Um, and it's not just, it's, and, and by the way, it's not just an external threat. Right. That's that's assaulting. It's a, also an internal threat. Right. With acute schizophrenia, paranoia, blues and also alcohol and skin and bones. You know, he's talking about these are all sort of things about like a, a mental there's a mental disorder actually happening mm-hmm. uh, in, 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 in to 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 modern man. Um, and, uh, and and again, I, I think it's 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 a very dark record. Right. Because ultimately. You know, like, and the bonus track that's issued, Mountain Woman, you know, in the end, Ma- Mountain Woman is sort of, I think, it's it's interesting that it's, um, you know, it was ended up being a bonus track. And it's certainly not the strongest track of any of the, you know, if there was one that you were going to put on the cut, cutting room floor, floor, I think it probably would be um, Mountain Woman. But it's also really kind of the most direct statement about what he's on about, which is that these two people living in the mountains are have the simple, virtuous, happy life and... But the the government uses compulsory purchase to basically eminent domain to take their property and they stick them in, um, you know, a concrete mountain. In other words, a, you know, public housing and they're and they've been defeated, even though they lived a better life. Um, and and so it's, you know, like I said, it, it, this is sort of this something that sort of begins with face to face and. Ultimately, it comes to a, a very, a very dark conclusion here. It's, it's a very dark record. It's a good and it, it's a, what's really fun about Ray is that he can sell you on really dark ideas um, like Skin and Bone. Like mm-hmm. Skin and Bone is basically uh, a song about anorexia, which is not a, which is, shouldn't be a subject that is you can laugh at. But Ray makes you laugh at it because it's just such a gosh darn funny, clever song. add to, to, to that is uh, song Oklahoma USA I, I want to point that highlight that song because it connects a theme that he that runs through his uh, catalog it's this idea first of all I'm pretty sure that the song was inspired by his sister who died suddenly that she was uh, she was she was a big fan of um, of uh, the, the musical Oklahoma hmm. but there's this um it's it's this theme that runs. I mean, you can see run all the way up th- up into Sleepwalker with the song jukebox music, right? Is this sort of um, people who are stuck in the drudgery of? And again, it's it's in the lyric itself is in the song. All life we work and work is a bore. If life's worth, if life's for living, what's living for, right? And the character in Oklahoma finds her escape by imagining imagining herself. Uh, in movies, right, and imagining living the life of a, a celebrity, and that's a theme. Like he, that that's sort of one of the themes in, um, you know, I know, Jeff. I think you're you're not wrong about 
she's bought a hat like princess marina it's one of their weakest songs but it's a it's a lyrical theme that's similar to oklahoma usa which is well my life is terrible but i'm gonna find escape by imagining myself as a celebrity it's something that comes up again well because uh, we all know that celluloid heroes feel no pain Right. Right. Exactly. It comes up again in Celluloid Heroes, and actually, and, and like I said, it's it's in uh, jukebox music, and the entire album Soap Opera is is really uh, oh. exactly like that. It's it's actually the, the the album. The main character in that album is Norman, and he imagines himself as being a celebrity living a a life of drudgery. It's Ray's All got right. this this thing about like using celebrity and. Fetishizing celebrity is a tool of escape from the awfulness of modern life. All right, all right. So this, of course, brings us to what I consider to be the long, dull afternoon of the King's career. Let's try to go through this as quickly as possible. And I know <laughs> that you want to defend some of these albums, uh, which will be fun because they're indefensible albums, right? But uh, everybody's in showbiz. It's 1972. This is a hybrid studio live album. The live material is... I don't know, Kinks, you don't come to the Kinks for their live music. It's adequate. It's nothing special. Um, the studio album is, I think, interesting in that it's not an awful record, but it shows a clear sign of decline. It's more arch. It's more camp. It's more theatrical, in my opinion. Somebody called it I the do drunkest... not like Celluloid Heroes as a single. It's a very well-loved pop song. That's not a favorite of mine. Same with Supersonic Rocket Ship, which seems to me a little bit too much like a second go round on the whole Ape Man vibe. Uh, the one that I love, the one song on that record that I truly rate and I think is uh, a masterpiece, or at least close, is a, a, a piano ballad called Sitting in My Hotel, which is mm -hmm. just sitting at a piano, playing a song, singing it. Um, very sad little ruminative piece. If my friends could see me Dressing up in my bow tie, prancing round the room like some outrageous fool. They would tell me that I'm just being used. They would ask me what I'm trying to prove. They would sing. The rest of this record to me is a clear sign of decline, and of course. In my opinion, it carries over into what I consider to be the four biggest missteps in the history of modern rock music, or close, which are Preservation, Acts 1, 2, and 3. That's two albums. Oh, my God. Two <laughs> albums to get through, one of them a double album. Then there's Soap Opera, and then there is Schoolboys in Disgrace, which has one of the most memorably unlikable album covers in the world. Yes, yes. A cartoon boy with his pants down, about to get smacked on the butt with a paddle. That one must have sold a lot of copies. After that, Ray sort of self-consciously dropped that and went a lot more commercial. But this theatrical era of the Kinks has some very, very proud and bold defenders, among which is our guest, Jay Cost. Before Jay launches into this, because I know he has a ton to say, what are your thoughts on this period? Uh, I'm basically down the line with, you um i actually i do like cellular heroes from everybody's in showbiz someone had called everybody's in showbiz the drunkest album ever made i don't know if that's true but that's, that's kind of the vibe <laughs> by that actually that's that's the vibe that it throws off there are i think three separate songs relating to food including uh, maximum consumption which is about eating a lot of food um sitting in my sitting in my hotel you mentioned i like that one a lot and i i just must say there's not much i take away from the next 
uh, stretch of albums. I, I, I think Jack the Idiot Dunce from Schoolboys in Disgrace might be might be my least favorite Kinks song of all time. So this was, yeah, up until Sleepwalker and especially Misfits, which we want to spend some time on. But but uh, up until that point, th- this mid-70s period, uh, of which Jay will tell us we're t- well, at least partially wrong about, is not my favorite. You guys are. You're partially wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, if it makes you feel any better, I used to be wrong, too. And credit where it's due, because I know my buddy Dan. He's been my best friend since I was a kid. Um, I got him into the kinks. I think I was the first one. I think I gave him a copy of Muswell Hillbilly, but he took it out. Dan has this perverse desire to listen to the worst records that a band does. So Dan will listen to, for instance, when Rolling Stones, you know, he made a point to really learn every song on the Rolling Stones albums. That meant that he spent like three months listening to like Undercover. Dan's got this perverse... Uh, it's great too because I had the same view, but Dan kept on me about. It. He's like, "No, you got to listen to these albums, man. There's a there's a lot of good songs on there." And act, so actually, I think that when I first of all, preservation is um, as as and all of these albums. First of all, I think there's a couple points that I would say in defense. First of all, is that it it relates to the lifting of the touring band. Okay, so the the Kinks were allowed to come back in the United States mm-hmm. in the seventies, um, and they start. They, I mean, they really hit the road. I mean, they're all, constantly on tour, and all. And so, Preservation One, Two, Soap Opera, and Schoolboys in Disgrace are all really meant to be consumed on a live basis. And and I would point out too that from, you know, that it was the Kinks had been by the time they left Pie their standing in the united states had fallen completely into the into the gutter from a from a from a sales perspective i mean lola notwithstanding but i mean even lola like lola was a top 10 single but it still wasn't enough to get the actual album into the top 20 mm-hmm. okay muswell hillbillies bottoms out at 100 in in the in the in the billboards with a bullet um, yeah yeah, exactly. But what so but so so preservation one and two don't really sell, but the Kinks are touring relent, relentlessly. And then and they begin to build this cult following. So soap opera in nineteen seventy-five hits at uh fifty-one and schoolboys in disgrace hits at forty-five, which are you know the better selling than anything since since Lola, and there is no hit singles on any of these. So they and, and how are they building up this audience? It's because they're taking these albums and they're putting them on the stage. And the albums that, if you listen to the concerts from this period, the concerts have this sort of jubilant kind of campy feel to them that is just not translated on the LPs themselves. The LPs themselves are badly done. I mean, there's too much narration. And Ray, he doesn't do any narration for schoolboys in disgrace, but to tie the whole thing together, he's got to put this long explanatory note in um, in the liner notes. So I think that insofar as if you're going to give these a fair shot, I think it's you'd be well advised to try listening to them live uh, or find track down live versions. of them. But that being said, it, that within these albums, there's actually a lot of really good songs, as among which is is actually preservation. I, my sort of kinks, like my mix uh, playlist for the kinks, I actually between preservation one and two, I have. Um, I have about 15, uh, 15 songs, and some of them are I, I, some of them are really good. Sitting in the midday sun, one of the survivors, which is actually kind of a follow up to Johnny Thunder from uh, 
Village Green. Sweet Lady Genevieve, I think, is one of their one of their great songs. He's evil. I mean, there's just a lot of uh, Salvation Row, which closes out the end of of Preservation Two. Um, the, you know, the albums as albums don't actually work. Preservation one and two don't actually work, but you can cobble together a pretty nifty kind of LP, single LP out of the two and a half LPs that they put together. Now, as for soap opera, I think is easily their campiest album, but I think of all of the albums, I actually think it works the best. I think it works on its own terms the best. Everybody's a Star is a great song. I think Actually, uh, there's actually very few songs on this I don't like, um, and I, I'd say uh, "Holiday Romance" is one of their uh, one of my favorite songs that they did. It's sort of a testament to Ray's perverse sense of humor, and then that one closes with a really great song. You can't stop the music, and I come on, "Ducks on the Wall." I like "Ducks on the Wall." You can't not like that, that song. <laughs> Finally, so again, to sort of move through this quickly, I think Schoolboys in Disgrace. Dave, so they asked a couple years ago, they said, ask Dave Davies, what, what, what's a Kinks album you really like? Yeah. And he said, I listen, re-listened to Schoolboys in Disgrace, and damn it, that's not a good record. It's a hard-rocking record. Um, it's sort of a throwback to 50s rock and doo-wop. Um, it's, it's got um, some really good songs on it. It's got um, The Hard Way, which is a really good song. Um, I think Education's sort of a fun song, and then No More Looking Back is a really good song as well. So, uh, you know... It, it, if you judge the kinks against the triumphs that they, the artistic triumphs of the period between 1966 and 1971, um, their, their, their last couple LPs with RCA, yes, they're, they're definitely several steps down in quality. But they're still there. There's still quality there. I think that the, the problem, Ray got undermined by a couple things, right? The first, as Jeff, you pointed this out, like the, the, the music becomes in service to the concept rather than vice versa, which undermines the quality. I also think, um, you know, he was trying to bite off more than he could chew. You know, you can do a great stage production or you could do a good LP, but it's going to be really hard to find a way to do both. You could think the Who managed to pull that off in Tommy. Uh, but look, they they didn't do it. They couldn't do it with Quadrophenia. Quadrophenia is a record that sounds great on on the LP, but actually in live, they, they, they really couldn't pull it off. It's really hard to do what Ray was trying to do. And he kept, it's a testament to his stubborn perversity that he kept trying as well. Um, so I, would, I, would, I would rather listen to UK Jive on repeat for the rest of my life than ever have to hear soap opera again. I know what I'm getting, I, Jeff, for Christmas, though. It's live versions of soap opera and preservation. I think, yeah. Look, so, soap opera, first of all, a song like Rush Hour Blues, is it's a funny song. It's, it's funny. Everybody's a star. That's a good song. Um, Holiday Romance, you gotta listen. Holiday Romance is a funny, jaunty, little fun song. And it's, and yes, I mean, like, it's it's almost sort of like, it, it, you almost sort of have to, it, it's like digging for, for diamonds in the rough is what it is. You know, there's a lot of rough around here, but there are a couple <laughs> diamonds, uh, a couple gems hidden in these LPs. And actually, I, I think that all told, I have about, I want to say I have about 25, maybe not 25, maybe like 20, 20, 
20 to 25 songs across these four records, four and a half records, really, that I I like. I listen to them pretty regularly. So that's my I, defense. I, I would actually take 20 to 25 songs off of Sleepwalker over those four <laughs> albums. There, there are only, I think, 10 songs on Sleepwalker, which, yeah, by the way, so brings good. us to what, the late 70s commercial revival of the Kinks. Very strange, and it's kind of an era that, is, that has been forgotten about, um, despite the fact that a lot of this music had real commercial uh, performance. Mm -hmm. This is the era from 76 to back to 1983 or so where you could you know, reliably count on a Kinks album to you know get into the top 20 and the singles would chart and there would be people around listening to them. They'd play those songs on the radio and yet nobody really talks about them anymore. Some pretty good songs on this year. I mean, it's not the it's not uh, the Village Green Preservation Society, but you know, when I look at Sleepwalker, there's a song that ends that album called "Life Goes On" mm -hmm. that I think is better than anything on all of the last four albums combined. And so I'm I'm asking myself, well, what happened? I don't know. I think Ray finally found a little more discipline. Maybe he made a self conscious decision to change his approach. But uh, this this era is, is I think pretty sorely underappreciated well i yeah, i agree oh go go ahead scott i'm sorry i, I had read that dave and, and and mickey avery basically said that's it stop it ray we, we have to do something different and, and that's kind of how sleepwalkers sound changed um i like the idea that it's a new label new beginning new sound the very first song is called life on the road and knowing ray you think it's going to be this lamentation of life on the road and it's terrible and, and you never you're never home and you didn't see your family. and actually it's give me life on the road living the life that i choose living life on the road um so it's kind of this you know it's not only just a switch in 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 the sound but it's 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 almost a switch in in uh in tone and 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 lyrics as well that 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 Ray gets into on Sleepwalker. The title track Sleepwalker is 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 a really good tune. Dave's guitar work on Sleepwalker is fantastic. Oh, so true. And uh, yes. I want to I want to spend a lot of time. Well, not a lot, but <laughs> at least a little time on Misfits. But I know Jay wanted to talk about uh, Sleepwalker too. So go ahead. Yeah. Well, I would just point out that. Um... You know, so new label, 1977. They their 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 contract with RCA expires, and um, you know they they finally got a guy that they could work with. Clive Davis saw the mm -hmm. the talent there. I mean, Clive Davis must have been looking at the the chart action for their LPs during the 70s and realized that there was a built-in that that the Kinks had in the 70s in the United States had had built had created these these records these campy theatrical records had created a genuine cult following and that there was a commercial that you know that that could be melded with their if they, there was a return to their commercial kind of more commercial sound from the from the mid 60s that you could actually sell records and indeed they do sell records which is great I I this is what I love about the Kinks too is I love it I I love it when my band my favorite bands get overlooked or underappreciated <laughs> and then they get a little chart action that's why i don't begrudge the beach boys for kokomo because my feeling is good good for you guys you know you deserve to have a number one record after all the all the crap you've had to go through <laughs> i'm perfectly willing to hold kokomo against the beach boys just, <laughs> okay sorry. but so so what happens is right is that you know sleepwalker which is a much more radio friendly record uh hits at number 20 misfits less radio friendly hits at number 40 but then low budget comes in at 11 and give the people what they want comes in at 15 mm -hmm. state of confusion comes in at 12 and i i think that one of the things the songs on these albums are just more 
crowd friendly, they're more radio friendly, even more yeah. so than their peak period in the mid 60s, early 70s, where you sort of had to listen to them in part of this cohesive whole. There's no concept album going on here, not even sort of in the background as sort of thematic concepts. And the songs are much more, por uh, much more portable. Um, and also, I think that there is a weird kind of happiness to Ray's songwriting that he had not yes. exhibited yeah. for a long time. Yeah. And I think like it, it, this and I think Misfits is sort of a much I like to think of Misfits as being the final kink statement about things and yeah. a much more happier ending. Right. Because like when Ray leaves off his main sort of, you know, social commentary album, Muswell Hillbillies. Right. The end of Muswell Hillbillies, the conforming elements of society are coming in to close everything down. But in Misfits, the opening track says, take a good look around. The Misfits <laughs> are everywhere. You know, and it's sort of this thing. I almost think like Ray's obsession with the United States and he had been spending a lot of time in America. This is where like Sleepwalker are these songs about uh, Sleepwalker and Sleepless Night, Stormy Sky are inspired by his insomnia after having come to New York City. And I think like weirdly enough, you know, like Ray... Ray had celebrated the, uh, you know, the English countryside, and now he's also celebrating people who are going to let their freak flag fly. And like out of the wardrobe, I think, is another great example of, of that sort of people just living life the way they want to live life and finding a way to be happy and good for them. Um, and, and so I think that uh, Sleepwalker and Misfits, I think, are a nice uh, conclusion to, you know, the, and a nice, nicer way to think about Ray's you know, songwriting argument or whatever you want to call it, a nice, a nicer conclusion than what you get at the end of Most Well Hillbillies. Um, and, and also, I mean, one of the great things about these songs too, and it's, it's, it's hard to sort of, you know, appreciate this, but um, you know, one of the, one of the great things about Ray is it's, it's hard to get it across in a, in a conversation. You really have to listen to it, but sort of his, his sense of humor, you know, like in, in songs like, like permanent waves, I think it's such a great, yes. yeah. a great song where he got, he's like, Oh, I'm down in the dumps. I'm not happy. And his doctor's like, get a perm, man, get some new clothes and get a perm. You know I mean? Only Ray Davies could write a song like that. It's such a great record. Um, to myth misfits. Um, Look, this was nearly the end of the band uh, because right before Misfits was going to be recorded, the bassist left, their pianist left. Mick Avery was actually only on, I think, six tracks on Misfits. Misfits, he was talking about leaving the band, and so Ray and Dave get together and they just hang out a little bit, and uh, you know, it's a contentious relationship as brothers in rock and roll often have. But Ray and Dave sit down and they write, uh, you know, rock and roll fantasy and, and uh, trust your heart are the two songs that come out of the, that session. And this is just, Misfits is just this album about the Kinks and Ray just kind of accepting their role, I guess. You know, they're not going to be embraced by the mainstream. Their albums aren't going to go to number one, maybe number 20, number 40. Um, and in some ways questioning whether or not they, they want to go on, right? Should we, you know, we're, we're getting older. Should we still be playing rock and roll? Is this, you know, Elvis is dead and are we still rock and roll guys? Should we still be doing this? Um and so I think there's there's a lot of that, you know, rock and roll fantasy, the song it, itself, right? It talks about break up the band, start a new life, be a new man. And then a line or two later, for all we know, we might still have a long way to go. They're contemplating all of this. Hello, me. Hello, you. You say you're one out, want to start anew. Throw in your head, break up the band, start a new life, be a new man. But for all 
And Ray said, and, and uh, Jay alluded to this, look, Ray said this album, Misfits, was an effort to expand the fan base and have some fun. And I think it hit on, on both of those levels completely. Uh, and for, again, for, you know, for later era kinks, it's not Village Green and it's, it's not even, you know, it's not Lola. But Misfits is a really good album. And it's interesting when you know, uh, especially, I think, what the band was going through and what was, what was happening around Ray and Dave at the time. It, it's it's, it's, it's a well worth a listen. Rewarding. If I were to make a case for any of the Kinks' late 70s sort of commercial revival era albums, um, it would be for this. I would also say there are some uh, interesting uh, singles from later on. I've always kind of liked Come Dancing, I'm going to admit it. But uh, this is the album, the one album that I think really uh, holds together. And yeah, Misfits, Live Life, Rock and Roll Fantasy are, are all great. I'll tell you one that really fascinates me because I talk about a song that could never be made today. Never is Black Messiah. Which, <laughs> that song was released as a single, no less, and I think even at the time came in for some criticism by the more, uh, what would you say, the more sort of progressive and enlightened quarters of the American and British rock music scenes as being like, whoa, uh, you know, this is a hot button issue. For those aren't aren't aware, I, I, I recommend the song. The song musically is actually really good, um, and again, it was released as a single. That's how sort of commercially formidable the music is but the lyric is really off-puttingly interesting it's uh, ray davis presumably writing in a persona talking about how uh, yeah you know uh the, the racial harmony you know jazz that we've all been sold may be kind of a lie to to do black and white people are there ever truly going to get along he talks about living next door to a a guy who's like preaches that you know you know the the, the black messiah is coming and, and, and the black guy looks at him with hatred because he's the one white guy living in the black neighborhood you know this is a very kind of boy you know when in, in the present era people it's like oh that's an alt-right <laughs> thematic or some horrible thing like that it's not really meant that way and in fact you know ray is working with a lot of different layers of sort of dramatic irony and putting himself into personas it's a fascinating song a very daring song and then on top of all that musically that's a sharp song that is a well-written tune everybody talk about racial equality So you've got that, you got Trust Your Heart, which is Dave's song. I really like that. This is the last album. Um, they do a lot of, like, I think, one-shot. There's a couple singles mm -hmm. from all these records that I like that I definitely recommend. Things like, you know, Wish I Could Fly, like Superman. And, yep. uh, you know, uh, a lot of these others to give the people what they want. Yep. Um, but this is the last album that I think really holds together for me. I, I would I would hand this one to people say, okay, well, what, what's later era kinks about? Let me uh, let me squeeze in here, Jeff, because uh, our, our guest, uh, uh, Jay Cost, uh, is in a little bit of a time cruncher. We want to finish up here quickly if sure. we can and get right to our, our final little segment here, which is we ask our guest two albums everyone should own from the Kinks, and we also want yes. five tracks that everyone should hear, and the Kinks library is so vast, you can pick what you, what you, what you want to mean by that. Five tracks people need to hear. Uh, Jay, go ahead. 
Okay, so five tracks that I think everybody should hear. Well, it uh, so the five start with I, start with two albums, Jay. Two albums. So the two albums are Village Green and Muswell Hillbillies. And the five tracks that I picked out are You Really Got Me, Sunny Afternoon, Days, Lola, and a deep, deep, deep cut, Slum Kids. <laughs> oh, wow. The, 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 the song that was only ever played live and the album yes. version was never released except as a bonus track on exactly. Preservation Volume 2. Exactly. Wow. Um, Good song, man. All right. So um, my two albums here as we close things up with the, uh, the Kinks. Um, uh, Village Green Preservation Society. Again, I think the first, really, the, like the first nine songs on that album are are perfection. Not only are they perfection, but they are rewarding after multiple, multiple listens. And uh, uh, you said this earlier, Jeff, but really, if you haven't heard Village Green, pause, pause the podcast, go wherever you go to get your music these days, listen to Village Green Preservation Society. And I think I, I would say Lola is the second one because it kind of bridges that gap into the 70s, uh, different production values, um, and and, you, and and I think the again the eight man power man back to back is worth it worth the price of admission alone. So I'm going to say Village Green Lola for the two uh, to two albums, five songs from Village Green. Last of the good old fashioned steam power trains is a magnificent track to to listen to. Uh, from Arthur Victoria, might be the best. Well, it's a it's in the team picture for best single the Kinks ever put out. Again, they're an albums, album band, not a singles band, but Victorious is just a great, great song, uh, you know, outside of the, the early uh, or the mid-60s stuff. Power Man from, uh, from Lola. Grab that. And I actually adjusted this on the fly because we, uh, we weren't able to spend as much time as, as I would have liked with uh, Give the People What They Want, uh, which was released, I think, in 82. So I'm telling you, better things from Give the People What They Want is a track you've got to go here. Give the People What They Want is an album that's very cynical about the not just the, you know, the public at large but the media um and uh, uh it's kind of unrelenting in its in its cynicism and the last track is this beautiful one called better things i wish the production weren't quite as heavy on it and uh some people who have covered it since then have kind of stripped it down quite a bit it sounds a bit better but it's this optimistic song accept your life and what it brings i hope tomorrow you'll find better things it's a great great song And then I also want to point out Do It Again from Word of Mouth, which I think is the last great Kinks song. It was the single from Word of Mouth. Uh, it didn't do gangbusters, um, but it's got a great, great guitar part. Again, Green Day stole it for Walking Contradiction later on. And uh, the video, if you see the video for, uh, for, for Do It Again, quite literally, Mick Avery had just left the band, but he appears in the video, and, and Ray Davis quite literally replaces... Mick Avery in the video behind the drum kit. So there's like this, there's many layers to, to do it again in both the song and the video. So there, there you go. Those are my five. Jeff. All right. Well, yeah, my, my two are uh, pretty obvious from what I've said. Face to Face, 1966. Uh, not only is it the Kinks' first truly immortal album, it, it's just an album that captures a magical moment in in time, in, in both the British invasion, the sort of, you know, the 
the dialogue going on between all of these great British bands who were competitors and friends. It's an album that's so consistent that I, I have trouble even selecting one particular highlight from it, except to say that you should listen to the whole thing. Uh, the second album, of course, is Village Green Preservation Society. Uh, there's nothing I can say about this that hasn't already been said already by all of us. It's just one of it's the best album the Kinks ever did. Buy it, own it, cherish it. My five songs. I'm going to skip anything from face to face because I think it's all so consistent. Uh, it's all highlights. So I would single out my first track would be Situation Vacant from something else. It's a song we didn't really talk about too much. It's a very piano-based piece. It's uh, about a guy who basically ruins himself uh, on, on behalf of not only his wife but his mother-in-law's nasty expectations, forcing him to quit a job and try to improve himself. But it never really works, and so he ends up just reading the one ads every day and uh, <laughs> hoping for something better, a very kind of a dark tale, prefiguring a lot of the other darker stories that Ray Davis would tell. Magnificent musical backing as well. Uh, Nicky Hopkins figures very prominently mm -hmm. on it. Do you remember Walter? I already talked yeah. a lot about why this song means so much to me from uh, the Kings or the Village Green Preservation Society. The other one from that album is Animal Farm. Animal Farm is just amazing and it's the opposite of a dark tune it's optimistic it's so uplifting it's a it's a brief moment of escape into a happier simpler life mindless child of motherhood that b-side uh, written by dave davis that i talked about so much from the arthur era uh, uh, better than anything on the album in my opinion and i still don't understand why it was excluded except that it just didn't fit in with the concept and then finally i would say this time tomorrow which if you've seen the darjeeling limited mm -hmm. which is a not a very good film, sadly. You know, may be familiar with the song because Wes Anderson used it. It's an album track on Lola. It is a very underappreciated song. And again, it, it shows that some of the, the greatest musical virtues of the Kinks could be in their com combination of simplicity with a very direct and affecting personal theme straight out of Ray Davis's heart. He just talks about, like, this time tomorrow, where will I be? I'm flying around the world. I, I don't really know where I'm going. I don't know where I've been. I'm confused about things. I need to get back to a place where I can take stock of what is going on in my life. that matter to me uh, again all conveyed very simply without any artifice beautiful piece of music but again those five albums from the late 60s to the early 70s face to face something else village green even arthur lola muswell hillbillies that's where the core of the kinks myth has been created and there we are the political beats look at the uh, career of the Kinks and, and why Jay Cost <laughs> loves them so much. Uh, again, Jay Cost, you can find him on Twitter at JayCostTWS, contributing editor at the Weekly Standard, author of A Republic No More, Big Government and the Rise of American Political Corruption. Brand new book on the way uh, in 2018 as well. We thank Jay for joining uh, the uh, podcast today. Remember, it is a presentation of National Review, which means you can find all of our episodes at nationalreview.com. Click on uh, podcasts and we're right there. And you can also subscribe to our feed. New episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in on Monday mornings. Please listen and review as well. Jeff, always a pleasure, my friend. Always a pleasure. 
And we will talk to you once again next week. This has been Political Beats. <laughs>